A quick note to all our listeners, this episode contains explicit language and subject matter. He killed a man! He killed a man and waited 35 years and lived his life! And now he's telling you to ignore this evidence! Don't ignore the evidence! It's called Closing Arguments, but it's more than that. It is where some of the raw emotions of a hotly contested case come out. In front of the jury, at least, Prosecutor Tanaz Mikhaev and Defense Attorney Winston McKesson were civil toward one another, recognizing the decorum of the courtroom during the Pierre Romain murder trial. But by the end of the case, in closing arguments, the gloves came off and the lawyers squared off against each other, each arguing their cause but barely containing their enmity and insults. The jury saw the passions for the first time, and it was pretty raw. In this chapter, we're going to get into the closing arguments. I'm Michael Connolly, and this is Murder Book. So let's look at the reality of your life, Mr. Romaine. If a defendant lies, that can be used as evidence of guilt. Did you shoot the victim in this case? Absolutely not. Murderbook is supported by Ring. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. With a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam, the starter kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. Go to ring.com slash murderbook. Also, thanks to Zola. Zola is reinventing the wedding registry and planning process to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. To start your free wedding website and also get $50 off your registry on Zola, go to zola.com slash murderbook. The way it works at the end of a trial is that the prosecution gets the last word. Closing arguments are broken up with the prosecution going first, giving its main argument, followed by the defense, and then followed again by the prosecution, getting one more crack in rebuttal to the defense. So I'm going to skip over most of the prosecution's first part of the closing argument. Tanaz Mikhaev used her time to lay out the case she had painstakingly presented during those three weeks of trial, hitting hard on the DNA, the alleged lies and ties of the defendant, lies about the wounds on his arm, and ties to the Rolling Sixties Crips, and his own words caught during those wiretaps. Please listen and re-listen to those wiretap calls. It's not about street talk or just talking bad. Listen to the content of what he says. This man never disavowed the gang. It is him. It is his being. Mikhaev played some of those tapes, reminding the jurors that all the recordings were made years after Romaine had testified that he had quit the gang life. Giving you in his own words his MO, he gets up close and personal, none of this drive-by stuff. This is in 2003, ladies and gentlemen. The prosecutor used the tapes to paint an audio portrait of a man deeply embedded in gang life even though he carried a badge. He is calling the shots. He may sit here and look you straight in the face and say he's no shot caller, but he's calling the shots. The 
prosecutor seemed most angry about Romaine having been a cop. Listen to the pure emotion and fury in her voice here. Getting up here saying I was a federal police officer. The gall. We sit here and we say all the time we don't want bad officers and we don't want bad pills and we don't want the bad apple that go around shooting people for no reason. We got a gangster as a federal police officer. The gall. What a crock. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm upstanding. I'm upstanding, believe me. I've been a police officer. With police officers like that, you don't need any enemies. Mikhaev closed the first part of her argument by hitting the DNA hard, saying all experts in the case agreed that the DNA on the bullet Jay Clark fired at his killer belonged to Pierre Romaine and no one else. She warned that no matter what kind of life Romaine had led as a police officer, he was still a murderer. You can't get away with murder. And this is the first time in a long time, ladies and gentlemen, you sit here as witness with a victim talking to you from the grave. He talks to you from the grave, ladies and gentlemen. His fired shot to try to defend himself against the robbery solved this case. He was arrested more than twice before his last arrest because we didn't have the DNA or the technology. And when it came, and when we were able, Jay Clark and Time solved this case. I ask you to find him guilty of murder. I ask you to find him guilty of first degree murder. And I ask you to find the truth in the firearm allegation. Thank you. Now it was the defense's turn, and it was up to Pierre Romain's defense attorney, Winston McKesson, to try and make something out of nothing. Or I should say, something out of very little. McKesson's efforts to mount a third-party culpability case had largely been eviscerated by rulings from the bench. McKesson had been thwarted in his efforts to get Pierre Romain's brother, Andre, out in front of the jury as the gunman who had killed Jade Clark. He had gotten little bits and pieces of it into the testimony. For example, getting the state's DNA expert to describe Ware's DNA to the jury and to establish that the white Mustang presumed to be the getaway car was used by Andre almost exclusively. But those three words, Andre did this, weren't on the record. And now he would have to dance around that again and hope the jurors were smart enough to read between the lines and get the message. Wearing a tie with the image of Lady Justice and her scales on it, McKesson had another message as well, that Pierre Romain had not had a fair trial. He gave the jurors a civics lesson in the amendments to the Constitution and keyed on good old number six. The right to a fair trial. The right to confront and cross-examine your accusers. The right to be found guilty, not just based upon baseless allegations, like they did in the 1600s with the Salem witch trials. Salem witch trials? Was McKesson comparing this trial to that? Really? That seemed like a stretch to me. But McKesson was just gathering steam at this point. 
He railed against the recordings used during the trial. Not so much about his client on the wiretaps, but a recording of Detective Jackson interviewing Andre Romain's former wife and her remembering a phone call she got from Andre one night, saying Pierre had gotten shot. Think about this whole notion of fairness and the opportunity to defend yourself against all allegations. And this man has to come to try to defend himself against a call he knows nothing about. He was not present when the call was made. And guess what? The evidence showed Andre died in 2011. Why did he talk to Andre then? He was alive then. He's not a defendant. There's no evidence he was ever defending this case. Why did he talk to Andre then? Tell us what you told your wife. Doesn't that sound like the Salem witch trials? Defend yourself against something where there is no defense. McKesson jumped all over any miscues that occurred during the 30 years of the case, starting with the tape recorder that malfunctioned during Romaine's first interview with Detective Jackson back in 1987. The malfunction supposedly occurred during the part of the interview where Romaine supposedly told Jackson that the wounds on his arm came from a car accident, not an ice pick stabbing, as he had testified during the trial. You saw how they were taping everybody involved in the case. Remember, witnesses come in, play the tape. Play the tape. I you remember. We remember. The tape works for everybody else. But oh, it malfunctioned for him. Is that consistent with justice? Is that playing fair? Speaking of being fair, McKesson scored some solid points, I think, when he walked the jury through the prosecution's use of a photo taken in recent years and found on Pierre Romain's own Facebook page. It showed Romain wearing all blue clothes and a cap with a C on it. It was shown to the LAPD gang expert who testified that Romain appeared to be dressed as a full-fledged crip. You know, blue clothes, C on his hat. But the photo was shown to the gang expert without the caption that Romaine had written when he had posted the photo on Facebook. McKesson read that caption to the jury and made it clear that the photo had been taken in Atlanta during a trip to watch Romaine's son play high school football. His son played for Crenshaw High School. That's Crenshaw with a C. The school's colors are blue and gold. Pulling up Facebook pictures leaving off the caption to make you think, oh, he's still hanging. He's out there hanging on the corner. He's ready for whatever's going now. And they know, they pulled off the Facebook page. In the ATL. Hanging on some corner that the 60s have claimed as their own. In the ATL, about to go see what D Shaw dogs do against Northwest on the gridiron. 
This is this investigation team and this prosecution. To me, that was a solid knock on the prosecution. It underlined McKesson's argument that the state was putting winning ahead of justice, true justice. Knowing it was a good thing, he would come back to that photo later during his wrap-up. When you listen, like Lady Justice, weighing both sides, when you're listening with both ears, you don't put up this Facebook picture without the caption. McKesson also railed against the DNA evidence in the case and objected to the fact that Romaine and his ever-changing defense team never got a chance to test it for themselves because there was not enough material for a split, while some of the material was even contaminated. Who's in charge of the tissue? This side of the table. What happened to it? It was contaminated. They couldn't test it. Did she mention that yesterday in her remarks? I didn't hear it. I don't know if you can't beat them, join them qualifies as a legal defense strategy. But McKesson next told the jury that the wiretaps, a key part of the prosecution's case, actually helped the defense rather than hurt it. The tape supports our side of the table. Because time after time after time, he denies doing this, time after time. And he explains why. In street language, hey, they shot me, they got bleed. It wasn't my blood, so it wasn't me. He explains. But you know what else is important about that tape? When you listen to him, you don't hear fear in his voice. You hear anger. You hear frustration. <clears throat> like somebody who's been accused unlawfully. Somebody who has had his career 30 years in limbo and ruin because of these false allegations. That's what, he, that's what he sounds like. So when you listen to the tape and hope, he's denying it several times. He is mad. He is angry because he feels that he has not been treated fairly. He acts like somebody who feels he's not been treated fairly. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go, oh, man, I'm worried. Oh, shit. What if they prove this? No! I'm mad! It ain't me! We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, McKesson is going to get into the evidence he says the state did not have that is missing. We can't all have our own personal Bosch or Ballard to keep us protected. But we do have Ring. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You might have heard about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere, including me. No matter where you are in the world, Ring helps you stay connected to your home. If there's a package delivery or an unexpected visitor at your door, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to them all from your phone. That's thanks to the HD video and two-way audio features on Ring devices. I have ring cameras on my home so I can keep an eye on things when I'm not there and get alerts when there are people there who are not supposed to be there. It all gives me confidence that my property is secure whether I'm there or not. Get your ring starter kit using ring.com slash murderbook. With a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam, the starter kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. That's ring.com slash murderbook. 
Okay, let's go back to the case. Okay, we talked about this earlier. Pierre Romain's gang membership. When it began and when it ended, if it did end at all. It is important for the prosecution to establish that he was a gang member at the time of the murder because it builds in motive. He was a gang member. Gang members rob and kill, etc., etc. Conversely, if McKesson could convince the jury that Romaine was not a gang member at the time of the killing, then that would shoot a major hole in the prosecution's case. McKesson's efforts to do that repeatedly drew objection from the prosecution. Because what they do is, they make stuff up. They want to bring in I'm stuff. i to making stuff up. I said mix stuff up. Is that what it was mixed? Or mix. Right. Say it again. I said mix stuff up. Again, cultural sensitivity. They mix stuff up. They want to bring in stuff from the 90s to say he was a gang member in the 80s. They mix stuff up. Now let's think about Pierre Romain. Here's a young man, born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. Father leaves the home. Raised with his mother and his two younger brothers. Sends him to a local Catholic school, Saints and Cities, on Norman. First, kindergarten, sixth grade. Then, Holy Cross, on the east side, now he says, on Main. Near Jefferson High School. He goes there, 7th and 8th, Burgum Day High School. He told you, because he lives in a gang area, he is stopped multiple times to be FI. What that means, field identification. Because you know what happens? The police aren't stupid. They have gang task force. And they want to keep tabs on the members of those <coughs> gangs. And you know what? These gang members, they're proud of their gang affiliation. So they'll admit it to anybody. And from the 60s, they admit it. Stop numerous times. As a young man, while he's matriculating the inner city Catholic school. And they told, and don't think he would have slipped by. This Roman 60s gang, as, as they told you, this is the most notorious black street gang. They FI everybody. Did they bring you one FI card prior to this crime? Because that's what's important. What was he like in June of 87? They bring you one FI card. They didn't, because he wasn't a gang member. Because everything he did was inconsistent with gang membership. Next, McKesson focused on the LAPD's gang expert, Detective Darren Dupree, who had testified that he had grown up in South L.A. and had escaped the draw of the gangs. This, this Dupree they bought, this guy, he was never, never a gang officer for the Roman 60s. Never lived in the neighborhood. Why did they bring him? 
looks to me like they want to bring, well, he's black. He grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I'm going to object. You know, there's a point where argument becomes unacceptable. Undaunted by the warning by the judge, McKesson continued to hit on what was missing from the state's case. A gang expert who could place Romaine in the rolling 60s Crips at the time of the murder. Why not bring somebody who had some in-depth knowledge of rolling 60s? Why not bring some officer who could say, I knew this guy. Huh. Back in 1987. And they can say, well, that's a long time ago. Well, it wasn't a long time ago when they arrested him. Think about it. <clears throat> they brought in here Rick Jackson. He was around in 1987. They brought in the person who separated the tissue from the fabric from the bullet. This was 1987. They brought in that same person who did the, the, the car test. That was from 1987. And I'm probably missing somebody else. They have to draw three people. Every witness from 1987. They couldn't find one person in the LAPD who was in charge of the Rolling 60s Crips. <laughs> Now there was an awkward thing about this trial, more than awkward. It was a dispute between the prosecution and the defense over what it was Pierre Romain actually said on one of the wiretaps. Before we play this snippet, just another heads up. This audio contains extreme, explicit language. They're trying to say that the nigga that did the shooting, that nigga was bleeding too. Yeah, talking about the nigga got shot. You know what I'm saying? They were saying that the nigga, whoever killed this nigga, got shot. You know what I'm saying? I later asked Mikhaev about her playing the wiretap to the jury. She stood by her belief that Romaine said, I shot. There may be some issue as to whether he actually said that or didn't say that, but that's how it sounded to me. And so it was my decision to play it and let the jury decide. We talked about this during an earlier episode, and for the purpose of this discussion today, I'm just going to change the word to guy because I don't want to use the word that was said. The prosecution handed a transcript to the jury that translated to Romaine saying, the guy I shot. And the defense, of course, disputed this and said, Romaine said, the guy got shot. I have listened to the tape too many times to count, and I'm guessing here that you may have backed up and replayed it yourself. And I really think the prosecution got it wrong. I don't hear the I in I shot. Plus, when you listen to the phrase in context, it appears that Romaine is talking about the killer of Jay Clark being the one who got shot, not Jay Clark himself. Let's take a look at this the way maybe the jury would when it was time to deliberate the case. Terrell Lee Langford, the producer of this podcast, and I had access to the official transcript. We also had our own ears and listened to the segment several times. Here's that first part again. They're trying to say that the nigga that did the shooting, that nigga was bleeding too. That was the unidentified person Pierre Romain was talking to. 
This is what we came up with, again, using the word guy to replace the racial slur that was actually used. He said, are they trying to say the guy who did the shooting that they were bleeding too? And then here's Romaine's response. Yeah, talking about the nigga got shot. You know what I'm saying? They were saying that the nigga, whoever killed this nigga got shot. You know what I'm saying? That was Pierre, and we think he said, yeah, talking about the guy got shot. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying the guy, whoever killed this guy, got shot. You know what I'm saying? I think it's pretty clear they are talking about the guy who shot Jay Clark having been shot himself. It made me wonder why the defense was leaving it to the jury to investigate it and decide. Why didn't McKesson offer his own transcript to the jurors or put the written conversation up on the screen in the courtroom? As I've said before, I'm not a lawyer. I'm an observer. So I don't know all the rules, and I don't know whether he was prevented from doing that, but it seemed like if he had caught the prosecution misinterpreting, and that's a kind way of saying it, either intentionally or unintentionally misinterpreting something to say this was actually a confession to a murder, it seems like he should have gone all out to prove it was not to the jury. But that's just me. Instead, McKesson told the jurors that this misinterpretation of the wiretap was simply symptomatic of the prosecution's cultural insensitivity. And if you could see me, you would see that I was saying that with two fingers in quotes for cultural insensitivity, because those are code words for something else. And we'll hear about that later. You see, when you're born and raised in a gang community, And you're playing Little League Baseball with Timmy. And Timmy goes to public school. And you go to Catholic school. But you, Timmy's who you know. And you decide you're going to go one way, but Timmy does everything. You don't put Timmy down. You, you, you're from a neighborhood. You don't see Timmy as a gang member. Timmy is who you grew up with. Your eyes see Timmy as playing baseball. He's playing first base at Van Ness Park. They see Timmy as a hoop. They drain the humanity out of Timmy. By Hoover, I believe McKesson was referring to a Hoover Street Crips gang. To underline his thesis, McKesson pointed out Mikhaev's use of an outdated term when she was summarizing witness testimony during part one of her closing argument. This cultural insensitivity was shown yesterday in the closing arguments. Some of you caught it, some of you may have missed it. This young man's son, she asked him, your father lives, she was trying to get, but he really knows his father, his father forgot. Here, McKesson was referring to the testimony of Romaine's son during the trial. Pierre Romaine Jr. testified that he became an LAPD police officer because of his admiration for and the influence of his father. But on cross-examination, Mikhaev drew out the fact that he grew up primarily in his grandmother's house, not with his father. Nonetheless, McKesson used parts of that testimony to support his claim of bias in the prosecution. Your father's told us he lived in Illinois. Crenshaw High School is on 48th in the Crenshaw District. It's not actually on Crenshaw. It's a few blocks east of Crenshaw. 
Block it, you block it. So who are you living with? With my grandmother. All of a sudden, grandmother got converted to his grandmammy. His mammy. They don't understand. We don't use that term anymore. That goes back to the birth of a nation. Or gone with the wind. He didn't say it's Grammy or his grandmammy. He said it's grandma. McKesson was obviously tapping into the issue of race that seemed to underline the case, at least from the defense point of view. This idea that was espoused by Romaine on some of the wiretaps that he was being prosecuted because he was a black man who had risen up from the gang streets of South L.A. and made good. When Romaine told it to his friends on the phone calls, it played well. Whether it would with the jury remained to be seen. I should point out here that the jury was of a diverse makeup with at least half of its members being minorities, including four African Americans. I think I knew for sure that McKesson's playing of the race car would not go over well with Mikhailov. McKesson next reminded the jurors about those mystery blood drops found on the night of the murder on the sidewalk, just feet from Jade Clark's car. Prosecutors and police said the blood had nothing to do with the crime, and one witness from that night testified that he had seen a fight taking place between two men on that sidewalk just an hour or so before the murder. Other than that, the blood played little part in the trial until now. One of my favorite shows when I was a kid was Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes would always be talking to Watson. Whenever Watson would have a harebrained idea, Sherlock would bring him back to the fold. He'd say, Watson, I don't believe in coincidences. So, they want you to ignore this fresh blood that was collected at the scene by an experienced detective. These are the people's exhibits. Fresh blood at the scene. By the victim's call. Only people bleeding is the assailant and the victim. And it doesn't match the victim or Mr. Romaine. Because he's at home asleep, getting ready to go to work. And the diagram, these are all fresh from the top. The only time period that's really relevant in this case. You see this, 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 this diagram? I didn't prepare this. Detective Jackson prepared it. It shows north is going that way. Look at this blood. Look at these blood drops that he drew going north. But talk about gall. They have the unmitigated gall, the temerity, to suggest to you that that was a fight. And it just so happened. It just so happened. Two people get into a fight at the exact same spot 
when the victim decides to park his car. We don't know who was in the fight. We can't identify him. But trust us. You know what you say to that? They tell you to ignore items six, seven, and eight that they collected and nine. Watson, I don't believe in coincidences. The ghost of the trial, at least the defense's part of it, was Andre Romain. Not only because he was dead, but because he was the third party in the third party culpability case the defense had been trying to get to the jury. It was McKesson's last chance to get the jury thinking about Andre. Again, he was prevented from simply coming out and saying Andre did this because the judge had said he had not carried the burden of proof in terms of third-party culpability. But he could certainly throw suspicion on Andre, and that's what he did throughout his closing, reminding the jury that the trial testimony had included that Andre and Pierre lived together and Andre wore Pierre's clothes. That testimony included the state's own expert talking about wearer's DNA. It was almost like he should have been saying, hint, hint, Pierre's DNA was on the board because it was on his clothes and Andre was wearing them that night. There was more. He outlined that Dwayne Dixon, the man initially arrested with Pierre 30 years ago, was Andre's friend, not Pierre's. And then there was the white Mustang, the alleged getaway car. Did they bring you any evidence that Mr. Romaine's blood was in the Mustang? No. Did they bring you any evidence that Mr. Romaine's prints were in the Mustang? Prints? No. Did they bring you any evidence that he owned the Mustang? No. Andre Watt said he never drove the Mustang. He said he never drove the Mustang. But we know who did drive the Mustang. We know that. Again, they haven't even proved that he drove the Mustang. But no, all they want you to do is focus on some third-party tapes or some foul language that's used. That's their case. McKesson wrapped it all up by appealing to the jurors' logic and sense of fairness. What gang member? She's been telling me he's still a gang member. What gang member becomes a federal police officer? We're talking about afterwards now. Applies for the Riverside Police Department. Applies for the Riverside Sheriff's Department. Applies for the Long Beach Police Department applies for the California Highway Patrol, applies for the Rialto Police Department, applies for the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department, applies for the San Francisco Police Department, applies for the Oakland Police Department. Their case is weak. Their case was investigated poorly. And their case is offensive. 
It profanes the Sixth Amendment. And as Dr. King said, an injustice anywhere, particularly in Department 106 of this court, is an injustice everywhere. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. From Sherlock Holmes to Martin Luther King, from the Salem Witch Trials to Gone with the Wind, to lessons on the Constitution, as well as life growing up in a gang community. McKesson had seemingly left no stone uncovered in his defense of Pierre Romain. Personally, I thought he did well. Did he clearly implicate Andre in the killing? No. Did he put all the hints together that Andre wore his brother's clothes, that the experts said DNA remains on the clothing after they have been worn? Did he put all that together and say that's how his client's DNA got on that bullet? No, he couldn't. He had to be hoping that at least one juror would see the connection and put it together themselves. But I do think he scored points in his arguments about fairness when he talked about the ATL photo and the transcripts and content of that one key wiretap. In my opinion, those things made the prosecution look bad and more concerned with winning rather than true justice. But those were the only two points against a lot of direct and circumstantial evidence. Plus, the prosecutor would have one more shot at the jury, and we'll get to that after this. Zola is reinventing the wedding registry and planning process to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. Zola takes the stress out of wedding planning with free wedding websites, your wedding registry, affordable save-the-dates and invitations, and easy-to-use planning tools. Conveniently manage everything online and in one place. Go to zola.com slash murderbook, get $50 off your registry, and start your free wedding website. They offer over 100 designs, and they make it easy to personalize the design you choose. On your website, you can include photos, stories, travel information, and recommended activities for your guests while they're in town. It's also easy to build your own registry on Zola. The Zola store has the widest selection of gifts at all different price points. They also offer free shipping and returns, plus price matching. You can start your free wedding website and get $50 off your registry on Zola at zola.com slash murderbook. Okay, now back to the case. There was no break between McKesson's sometimes incendiary closing and Prosecutor Mikhail's final words to the jury. She was up, out of her seat, and didn't want to wait even a second before responding. To put it mildly, her words were pretty angry and pretty strong. Where I want to start first and foremost is counsel has made comments which he calls culturally unaware. He's calling me a racist, yes, ladies and gentlemen. That's all it is. That's all it is. He's calling me a racist because I called grandmother or granny grandmammy. He is saying I'm culturally unaware and I'm the racist, ladies and gentlemen, that sat here for however long you've been captive to this audience, showing you the evidence in seeking the justice, the lady justice that he puts on his tie. Okay, seeking the justice for the victim who's a black man and for his family who is a black woman. I'm the racist who does that. 
That's what he argued to you, ladies and gentlemen. And then he went on, didn't stop at racism, quote, cultural unawareness. He didn't stop there. He went on to say that I made up evidence, oh, I'm sorry, mixed up evidence. Mixed up evidence and tried to put, I don't, I don't even remember the saying, the wool, hide the wool or uh, take, uh, pull the wool over your eyes. That's the saying. Uh, somehow mislead you in the evidence so that you will come back to the verdict that I want, which is guilty, okay? Let me say something right now, ladies and gentlemen. I don't want any verdict. I think the evidence shows you that the defendant committed this crime and his DNA convicts him. But if you believe that I as the prosecution in this case or any member of the investigation team is racist, tried to hide evidence, and tried to fool you, find him not guilty, that is your duty. If you think we are lying, you find this man not guilty. I don't go. It's as simple as that. I promise, folks, I go home at the end of the day. It's not what I want. It's what the evidence shows. Mikhaev wasn't mincing words in her last few minutes in front of the jury. But it wasn't just hitting back at McKesson's insults. She had a decision to make. In his case, as well as his closing argument, McKesson had thrown shade on Andre and done everything he could to point the finger at him without being able to actually point the finger at him. Mikhaev had to decide whether to let that float out there or do something about it. If she believed the jury was sophisticated enough to pick up on the Andre innuendo, she might be hurting herself by not addressing it. I could see the jurors going back there and saying, why did she not say anything about this? Why didn't she put down this part of the defense? On the other hand, addressing it certainly would shine a light on it, and that could be bad as well. This is how she handled it. Now, I think in this closing argument that counsel gave, we hit a new low. I thought we had hit it when the defendant testified that he received his injuries from an ice pick. Remember, he couldn't remember who he had told that to. And in fact, he said something to the effect that nobody asked him about it. But he blames it on who, ladies and gentlemen? His dead brother. If that's not the most cowardly way of going, let me blame my gunshot wound that I received, which allowed the DNA to be left on the crime scene on my dead brother. And let me put a picture of him, defense A, up, which clearly shows us embracing and not fighting. But let me put a picture of him up and then say, he's the gangster. The prosecutor returned to the DNA in her wrap-up. In her estimation, nothing beats the DNA in hand. It's the ultimate hammer of justice. It's foolproof. It's foolproof. You know, he would have been better off. He would have been better off if he came up in, this, in front of this jury and said, you know what, 
I was there. The victim pulled the gun on me and it was self-defense. He would have been better off. Why? Because it would have explained why his DNA is there. This sounds exactly like what Rick Jackson was worried about 30 years ago. When I heard this in the closing arguments, I had to wonder, 30 years and several lawyers after the crime, did Romain go down the wrong path with his defense? He did stipulate during the trial that the DNA was his, but he didn't own it. He attempted the long-shot theory that the DNA came off his jacket, that it was Ware's DNA that was picked up by the bullet when his brother Andre wore the jacket when he committed the crime. Maybe the simplest defense would have been the best defense, and he missed that chance. There is no reason why his DNA is there. None. You can't get his DNA there without him being there. He's the guy that went and pulled Jay Clark out of the driver's seat. He's the guy that had the revolver in his hand. He's the guy that shot Jay Clark. Kayaf put all her anger and emotion into her final pitch, calling on jurors to avoid the distractions of race and fairness that McKesson had put forth. He took another man's life, and this isn't about race. I don't care how much Mr. McKesson wants to make it about race. This is a black-on-black crime. This isn't about race. He killed a man. He killed a man and waited 35 years and lived his life. And now it's telling you to ignore this evidence. Don't ignore the evidence. Now, if you think somebody lied, you think we're hiding something, you think it's about race, let him go. But if you see the evidence for what it is, this man is guilty of murder. And he's exactly what I said to you at the beginning of this case. He's a murderer walking among us. And that was it. Three weeks of trial, an argument, and now the case would be handed to the jury to deliver a verdict on Pierre Romain. We'll be back next week with their decision. I'm Michael Connolly, and you've been listening to Murder Book. I want to thank our law enforcement consultants and Judge Larry Paul Fiddler for allowing us to record the trial. Murder Book is produced by Terrell Lee Langford. Grace Kelly provides the music, including our theme song, which is fittingly called By the Grave. Additional music is provided by Pond5 and Premium Beat. Post-production and editorial services provided by Authentic, and additional editing by Jason Kang. If you'd like to see photos from the case or read the transcripts of all our episodes, go to murderbookpodcast.com and email your questions about the case to podcast at michaelconnolly.com so we can discuss them in an upcoming episode. Please subscribe at applepodcast.com slash murderbook so you don't miss the next episode. Also share it with someone who loves true crime as much as you do. Finally, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Chapter 10 is up next. <laughs>